everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We want to invite you to learn more about the heart and vision of City of Lights. So check out our website at cityoflights.church and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at City Lights Indie. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, this morning we are in week three of our Better series, Better Jesus is Greater. We started out in the first week of the series really talking about, I guess, the summation of the whole of this series is to understand that Jesus is the focus of the whole of Scripture, that he is the centerpiece, he is the hero, he is the focus and the subject of the whole of Scripture. He did not just show up late to the party, but that all of the Old Testament, all of the Scripture points to him. And that as many of us may have seen the Old Testament or some of the teachings of the Scripture as many individual kind of isolated moralistic teachings of this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, this is what it takes to be a good boy or a good girl, that truly when we look at the scripture as a whole and we understand it as we ought, that we realize that though there are moralistic teachings and those things are good, but that in and of itself is not the gospel. That the great good news of the word of God, and I just remind us that the gospel is not just the four books in the New Testament, but the whole of scripture is the good news. And that when we understand it, we understand that the whole of the gospel is not about all the things that we have to do to be good Christian boys and girls, but that we actually aren't good. It is he that is good. It is Jesus that in his love and his goodness has pursued us. And so last week, we began by looking at Adam. Adam, who was tempted like all of us. And how God does not look at us with contempt because we are tempted but he actually empathizes with us. He recognizes our brokenness and he came and he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in our place so that we could have power over temptation. And this morning, we're gonna take a few steps deeper into the Old Testament. We're going to unpack and look at the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea is the first of the minor prophets and what we mean by that, if you're like, you know, major or minor, are we talking about music? Like, what's the deal? Um is when you look at the scriptures, there was essentially, it was designated major or minor, not necessarily because of the importance of what they were saying, but really because of the length. So you have certain prophets that had very extensive books, and then you get into the smaller books of these prophets, Hosea being one of them. Now, the time frame that Hosea is coming to us, Hosea was actually, one of the things you want to understand is that the 12 tribes of Israel, this is a family that God had made a specific covenant to, a relationship to, beginning with Abraham, as we'll look at in a moment. And there were 12 tribes that came out of this family, and this family was a designated family that God said, through this family line, I am going to restore all of humanity. Through this family line, through the line of the tribes of Judah, I am going to restore all of the earth. Now, The kingdom was one unified kingdom under David. The 12 tribe unified together. However, after David's passing, there was all kinds of, I mean, because of humanity, 
all kinds of brokenness, syncretism, many of the tribes giving themselves over to idol worship, worshiping foreign gods, bringing in foreign practices. And so we see that after David had died, the kingdom had split between two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known often as Israel or Ephraim, as referred to in the book of Hosea. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. This is where Jerusalem was located. And so two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, would remain as the southern kingdom, while the other ten tribes would separate. Now, the evil king Jeroboam, which took place during the split, really it was through him that the northern kingdom began to go just wild. They had forgotten their covenant with the Lord. The first of which was to have no other gods before him. And they began to give themselves to idol worship. But because they were still a little bit religious and their grandmama raised them up in church, they would go and while out and then they would come back to the temple to offer things unto God as if nothing was wrong. I know none of us have experienced that. And so... They began to make not only worship foreign gods, but they began to make alliances with foreign governments so that they had protection or so they thought. Little did they know that they would eventually be overtaken by these very things that they put their trust in apart from God. That during the time of Hosea, Hosea came 200 years. He's living in the northern kingdom 200 years after the split between the two. God places them, him here in the midst of all of this dysfunction. And he is prophesying over the coming conquest of Assyria that's going to come and overtake them. Now he's not just prophesying their destruction, but he actually is prophesying their redemption as well. And so we're going to look at not only what this meant for this people here, but what God was giving us a foreshadowing of of what his plan was for the full of the restoration. So I want to start out, we're actually going to look at Hosea 3, and then we're going to work our way from there. If you want to begin in Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I'm like, there is no raisin cake that good, y'all. I'm just saying, intimens, they can't handle that, you know. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be with you. For the children of Israel shall dwell Many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in to fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you cut care for us. I thank you that your love is relentless. Lord, I thank you. That in word and in form from the beginning of history to now and forevermore, you make your love known. Help us to see it. 
and receive it. Help us not to miss it yet again because of our pride, because of our shame. We love you. Help me to communicate this truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that really bothers me is that when there's something that you enjoy doing or rather enjoy eating and people feel like it is their personal responsibility to inform you what you're really eating so that they can just spoil your fun, right? Like I I remember I first encountered one of these Pharisees when I was I was in a play and I was in a kid's play, and I don't know, this girl, this teenage girl, she was just becoming awakened by the vegan world. And I was talking about how much I love breakfast food. Like, I'm a fan of breakfast. Like, since I was a kid, I learned how to make omelets. Like, we throw down. Like, there's certain things I just, I believe that as a dad, like, you might not be a mega chef, but I'm like, you got to throw down breakfast, and you have to be able to grill some meats. Like, if you can do those two things, way to be. You know what I'm saying? Uh, But, so, I love breakfast, and I was talking to this girl about, you know, or actually talking to the group how much I love eggs. And then she decided that she just... She, she right now, she's against eggs. So she walks in, and in just a moment of talking about the glorious splendor of the incredible edible egg, she goes, oh, my gosh, you eat those still? Don't you realize that's just the menstrual cycle of a chicken? I, I, yay. Bro, I had an amazing omelet yesterday. I'll just tell you that right now. But. You know, or like if you're eating ice cream or you're eating, oh my gosh, do you know how much butter is in that? Do you know how much dairy is in that? Is that like stevia? Is it sweetened with stevia or honey or maple syrup? And it's like the, the, the mindset is if the more you know about it, you will surely not love it anymore. Thankfully, that just has happened for me. Like I'm still living in the knowledge of eggs and ice cream. The Lord's helped me out. But what's scary is that many times the, you can love something or you can have an affection for something on the surface, but then as you begin to peel off the layers and see certain things, all of a sudden you're like, I don't, I don't know if I can do that anymore. And, and, and it's kind of like that way with people, right? Like sometimes it's easier for some of us to love the stranger down the street then love the woman next to us in our bed. The wife in the bed. Just want to specify that. You know. Hey, girl, I'll just tell you, I just love you. I love you like the man on the street. You know, no, okay. Uh, but why is it sometimes you can, you can say, man, I love this person, this complete stranger that I don't know, but yet with your sibling, your brother, your sister, your roommate, you, you have issue with them. And really, when we break it down, the reason is because you know more. You know more. You don't really know that person. Even if you knew them had knowledge, you don't, they have not affected you in a personal or an intimate way. 
So you might know, it might be easy to say, you know what, I forgive you, I love you. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. And yet, because of the person that you live with or you do life with, because they did some things and it actually affected you, you I, I, I will never forgive them. I could never, I will, I will forgive, but I will never forget. And we walk with this unforgiveness and we begin to portion off and tailor off our love and and how much we will love people. Why? Not because, not because all of a sudden like love got redefined, but because we just knew more. Right? What's crazy is that particularly when you get married, you think you know somebody, but you really don't have an idea. Like you got a little bit of an idea. I love Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says it this way. He says, you know what? My wife has been married to multiple men, all me. And I've been married to multiple women, all her. Because the closer you get, the longer you walk, you, not only are you changing, but they're changing and your relationship is changing. And the more and the more we get to know, the more the power and the strength of our love is revealed or exposed, whichever one you want to say. Now, I came to know the love of Jesus at a very early age. When I was a kid, I was very blessed. I was very fortunate that my parents loved Jesus and they helped me to understand his love as a child. I gave my life to the Lord when I was about three and a half years old. I believe it was a very genuine, it was a real encounter that I met and I encountered the love of Jesus and I knew that he loved me. I didn't fully understand what all that meant, but I knew that he loved me. And I loved him, but I didn't fully understand how broken I was. You know, when you're three and a half, the level of your brokenness is a little bit different. You're like, Lord, I'm just so sorry. Lord, I just complain and cry when I don't get my way and I smacked my brother because he took my toy. Lord, I just surrender it all to you, God. I surrender my poopy diapers to you, Jesus, you know. But as you get older, your poopy diapers get even nastier. You know, you think, you know, as a parent, I'm just counting down the days till my kids are like, we are like diaper and pull-up free. But the challenge is you might get rid of those pull-ups, but there comes a whole new level of depravity that starts making itself known. Just all kinds of revelation. I'm convinced anybody that thinks the man is inherently good and not evil, has never had children before. Because they just see things. Some of y'all have heard me say, like, I'll discipline Judah. He knows. I said, Daddy, these, Daddy's giving you parameters of love. That's what this is. It's not the law. It's parameters of love that I want you to walk in freedom. And if you do this, it's not going to go well with you. And then I'll ask him. He'll do it. Inevitably, he'll get disciplined. I'll say, why did you do it? And he'll look at me and say, because I like doing this. And I realized as I got over, older, even though I knew that I was loved by Jesus and even though I knew he loved me, it's not like when I was three and a half, I hadn't been a preacher, I hadn't been leading worship, I hadn't done anything special except for like learn how to maybe feed myself yogurt. I hadn't done anything to deserve his love. He just loved me because that's who he is. But as I got older, somehow there was two things that happened. One, I began to recognize the sin of human, humanity in myself. 
There was things that I was tempted to do that I didn't realize how, how broken humanity was. Not everybody else, but me. We can talk about society all day long, but society begins here. It begins in the individual. And the other thing that happened along the way is there was a lie that was seeded by the enemy that gets seeded to every one of us that says you can only be loved if you're good. That nobody can really love you if you mess up. And so as I got older, this lie began to permeate my soul. And I remember coming particularly, you know, through different phases of life, growing up in the church, but also having this performance kind of spirit upon me where I, 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 I didn't feel like I could admit my brokenness. I was convinced everybody else has this figured out. I'm the only one that's jacked up. It's the reason why when I was eight and was sexually abused by a neighbor's kid, I didn't tell a soul. Because I was convinced, no, this never happens to anybody else. There's something wrong with me. And I've got to hide it because if people know, they won't love me. And as I got older and I tried to live a double life and still kind of put on this, you know, good Christian kid act and because I knew I still had the, a sense of God's love but I was still convinced God I, I know that we say that you love me I know that you've said it but I, 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 I'm having a really hard time receiving it and because I wasn't receiving his love then I would go look for the things that only come from his love in other places and so sometimes it was in the relationships of other girls sometimes it was in party and if I could be the life of the party that's going to make me feel the affirmation that I need a lot of times, most often because I was in performing arts, it was through performance. If I can do another play, okay, I'll, I'll get, I know it'll solve it. When I, when I got to college, man, I'll feel affirmed if I've got a band, and that's what I want to do. I want to be in a band. I want to tour. That'll be the thing that'll fix this ache. And so I was in a Christian band writing songs about a God that I remembered, writing songs about a God I've heard about, but walking hollow because I was not walking in his love. I was really had become much like the people of Israel. Where early on God had made a promise and a confession of love to me. But I either hadn't received it or forgotten it. And would live this life much like them where I'd go out and I'd sing songs that I Believed in part, but did not really, truly live out. And as I got older, right around the time that I was 20, I had come under a very deep depression because I believed that God was real. I believed that his word was true for most everybody, but I could not believe that he loved me. Because I've done too much, and he's the only person on the planet that knows it all. And when I read Hosea, I think about the way that 
so many of us, and I see this story, I think of how so many of us, we live these lives where we only put before people what we think we need to to keep them on the level that we want, right? I want to be liked, I want to be loved, and so I don't want you to see my flaws. Like, for the most part, on your Instagram feed, on your Facebook feed, there's just certain things. You look at the picture, you're like, I'm not posting that one, right? Even the ones you post, usually you put a filter on it because it made it look better. And if that's how we act in our social media feeds, how much more so do we act in everyday life? Like, when you apply for a job, do you put all your failures and write-ups on your application? Right? Like, I've, got, I've done some really cool things, and I've done some really jacked-up things, too. Like, I've had a lot of jobs, and just not all of them were glamorous. I was a sandwich artist. God bless sandwich artists out there. Subway, what, what? You know. But, you know, you, there's just certain things you just don't put on the resume. Why? Because you're wanting to gain favor based on the knowledge that you provide them. Right? Because, you know, if there's certain things that you put on there, they're going to judge you differently. And so I realized as I got older, oh, wait, that's, just, that's not just me. This is a human condition. That we in and of ourselves are not a faithful people. Do you hear that? We, I, you are not a faithful people. Now, there might be certain things that you're more faithful about, but at the heart of humanity is a people that wants what we want, when we want it, how we want it, and we will keep a covenant to the extent that it benefits us in the moment. When it gets hard, when it gets tough, many times we bow out. And this has been proven time and time again, not just in Scripture, in all of history, as much as you might want to be faithful, as much as you might put yourself out there, you know good and well that some of you out here have already paid for two months of a workout gym covenant and have probably gone twice. Some of y'all are like, I'm getting rid of all these carbs. These demons will not have control over me. Had a donut on the way. And it's not just these things. It's in subtle ways. And then what we could do is we just, rather than acknowledging them, repenting of them, receiving grace and mercy, we just hide it. I just make sure I threw away that fast food bag before Kelly got it back in my car. We're just going to be real today. Can we be real? I'm just saying, I'll be transparent, you know what I'm saying? We, we, we make sure, okay, I'm just going to make sure that I clear, clear my viewer history before anybody else is on the computer. I make sure I'm going to delete that text message thread or go under an alias. We just try to cover it up. Hosea, my God, this book is not about a cover-up. That's one of the things that makes it awkward. When you read this book, the book of Hosea, for the most part, the majority of the book is very poetic in nature. But the first three chapters of the book of Hosea gives a bit of an autobiographical narrative 
of a word that was not just given to Hosea. See, God was sending a word, but it wasn't just in word form. He said, Hosea, I don't want you to just give this word. I want you to embody it. I want you to embody this word in the flesh. And what God was communicating to this people, this rebellious people, this adulterous people that had become adulterous out of idolatry, is he was saying to them, listen, I made a covenant with you. I said I do. And you took that covenant and you went and hoard yourself out to someone else multiple times. And he goes into detail about what this looked like to this people. And I tell you, when I was reading, as I've been reading it through, some you, you really do need to read it. It's not too big. You can read it in one setting. But you cannot isolate it because sometimes you read it and you're like, man, this is uncomfortable. Have you ever, like, been in the room where two people, two married people, or your mom and your dad, or somebody are, like, having an argument that you know, like, things have gotten a couple layers beyond what they normally do in public, and you're like, this is awkward. You're like that Homer Simpson meme where you just go back in the bush, back in the bush. I just walk out. I don't need to be here. That's That's what it feels like sometimes when you're reading Hosea. Because God is not afraid. He's he's acknowledging. He's like, no, this happened. This happened. Sometimes we can, we we, we feel like we got to hide things and we just don't acknowledge them and we leave them alone. God's saying, no, 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 that happened. Love is not made stronger by ignorance. Love is made stronger by being made known. Anybody can love you if they don't know you. Anybody can love you if you've never actually interacted with them and they don't know that you actually don't put the seat back down or they don't know that you don't uh, handle the toothbrush the right, toothpaste the right way. Or anybody can love you if you've never lied to them before. Anybody can love you if you've never broken a promise. But he actually lays out, this is what has been done. First of all, you have to know of God's covenant promise that he made. So as I said before, as God had made a covenant with Abraham, that he was through this family that he was going to redeem and restore all things. Now, one thing that you have to understand about this covenant and the covenants that were made is it was a serious thing. It wasn't just like your phone contract. This was a serious thing. Even in some ways, more uh, intense and graphic than even the most binding covenants of marriage that we have now in terms of the way it was demonstrated. So when two people would make a covenant, typically what would take place is that they would take an animal, they would cut the animal in two, lay the parts of, uh, the two pieces of the animal apart, and then the lesser of the two making the agreement Kind of like if you were making an agreement with the bank, typically it's you who would run out of money, not them. So the lesser of the two making the agreement would pass through the two pieces of the sacrifice. And by doing so, what they're saying is, one, I bind myself to this covenant. And secondly, what they're saying is, if I do not fulfill this covenant, may what has been done to these animals be done to me. I will pay for my breaking of the covenant by the shedding of my blood, by my life. Now what's so powerful is that when God makes a covenant with Abraham, we see this in Genesis 15, 
The scripture says that when he's making this covenant of what he's going to do through his family line, he says, I want you to bring me a cow, bring me a goat, bring me a ram, bring me a dove, and bring me a pigeon. Why a pigeon? God bless us. We're figuring it out. It's the mysteries of God. I just like, pigeon? Like, when I see New York, I'm like, you know what? You're part of the covenant. God bless you. But he says, I want you to gather these things to me. And to the cow, to the ram, to the goat, they were split. They were separated. And now the the crux of the agreement says that God put Abraham in a deep sleep. God put Abraham in a deep sleep. It said darkness came and and it covered. And that rather than have Abraham pass through the sacrifice, the presence, the spirit of God came and passed through it himself. God knew man cannot keep this covenant. He knew our brokenness. He knew that we had already done a great job of demonstrating not being able to keep a promise. And that we couldn't do it on our own. So God bound himself to his love covenant. He said, I will be the covenant keeper. And so you see why it was so heartbreaking when God makes this covenant with this people and then this people would completely forget it and continue to whore themselves out. Now just for you, to, I, I want to help you understand even from a practical sense what Hosea was doing. So God says to Hosea as a demonstration, and he had done this in, in other parts of the Old Testament, where he would ask a prophet not just to say it but to demonstrate it, to act out this scene. To Ezekiel. He asked Ezekiel, hey, I want you to lay on your side and you're going to cook bread over your own feces to be a demonstration of a famine that's coming and consequences that are coming to my people. That's next level prophecy, right? Some of y'all, you come, you're like, oh, Lord, I want to grow in my gift of prophecy so I can give a word to somebody. You're like, okay, uh, cook your bread over your feces. You're like, oh, I don't really want that gift that much. Um, I'll just, you know, stick to hospitality, you know. But these are some, like, serious words. So here in Hosea, what does God do? He tells them, I'm not just giving you a word, but I want you to go, and you are going to marry an unfaithful woman. Now, this wasn't just any kind of brand of unfaithful. This isn't like she's just on AshleyMadison.com. She's, she's not just, you know, hooking up with a coworker. During this culture, the level of wickedness that was taking place was, I mean, it would make your stomach turn. Essentially, part of the idol worship that was taking place is they had given themselves over to worshiping Baal. It's B-A-A-L. Some people pronounce it Baal because there's too many awkward things you can get on when you start saying Baal and balls and all that stuff. But we're grown folks. But it's B-A-A-L. There's a guttural sound, Baal, in the Middle Eastern sound. I know my man Tony knows what I'm talking about. But essentially what this specific God, they worshiped him because he was a God that would bring about rain, fertility, and prosperity to their crops. This people was a very agricultural people. And so they would worship. Now the way you worshiped, and particularly the magic and the divination of that time, is that they would do a thing called imitative worship. 
imitative worship or imitative magic was that they would bring or they would hire temple prostitutes and you would come before the shrine and you would consummate with this temple prostitute as a means of conjuring the God to join with other gods and to consummate and therefore reign on the land, bring produce, bring productivity into the land. And so literally Hosea was marrying a woman who had been given over to temple prostitution, whose very body, whose very life was one big desecrated mess. And not only was he taking her on as his wife, knowing that she was already in a midst of a life, and not just a, not just a, a moment, but a lifestyle of brokenness and, and unfaithfulness, but he also took upon the children that came from her. The scripture says, I want you to take a wife of whoredom and also children of whoredom. And so not just an unfaithful wife, but the fruit of that unfaithfulness. It's amazing. I've seen so many different relationships where guys or gals are like, I love you. I want to marry you. But I don't want your college debt. God is not just saying, I want you to take her. I want you to take everything that came with it. Now, if any of us were like counseling a couple and this scenario was unfolding before us, not only would we say, this thing probably needs to come to an end, but you would have biblical basis for divorce. I think it's amazing that so often you know, we can just focus on like, you know, particularly when it comes to the issue of divorce. I'm not going to get into this big conversation, but we, there are biblical basis for divorce. And many times we look at that as almost like being an out rather than just being what it is. Just because there's biblical basis for divorce doesn't mean there has to be in divorce. I've seen God restore and redeem the most broken of situations. But here it is that Hosea has taken on this woman and his counsel from the Lord. Is not to abandon her. His counsel from the Lord is not to turn his back on her. Is not to leave her. But God says, I want you to go and buy her back. You are going to redeem her. I want you to go and pay the purchase price of her bondage. And not only are you going to pay for it and that she would be free, but you're going to bring her right back to you. And you're going to love her. And she will be loved. And she will be united. And she will be restored. Not ignoring the unfaithfulness, but acknowledging that I love you in spite of it. We are an unfaithful people. You know, as I told you before, I, I came to know the Lord very early on and I knew his love. But over time, it was really hard for me to receive his love because I was convinced because he knows surely his love, he, surely he couldn't love this. I'd hear stories about people who weren't saved, who were in drugs and who were sleeping around and doing all kinds of things. And then it seemed to me, at least the testimony that I would hear was, I didn't know Jesus. My life was a mess. I did all of these things. But God, and he loved me, and now I've never been the same. 
And I would hear that. I think, well, that's what it's supposed to be. But that wasn't my testimony. My testimony was I met Jesus early on. I gave up my toy train and crying and waking my parents up at 2 a.m. But I knew Jesus, and I came to know him as a child. But then what I came to know was my own brokenness. And I'm messed up. I've not only abused, I've used women. I've spent one weekend at the beginning of the weekend going to a Christian coffee house. The next day, getting high, getting drunk. I've gone and led worship for a bunch of people at a youth concert. And two days later, in bed with my girlfriend. Yeah, he, he doesn't want me anymore. He doesn't want me anymore. He loved me. Affirm me. I, w- I wanted to believe it. I really want the love, but I just screwed up. God's point was not to say, I made a covenant with you and you screwed it up. What he's wanting to communicate in Hosea and what he wants you to hear today is that his love for you is not based upon what you've done. It's not based upon what you're going to do. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that all of us are not just going to have highlights for the rest of our life. I know, I'll speak for myself, as much as I love Jesus and I know he loves me, I'm sure that I've got plenty of room for some boneheaded moves. (laughs) Kelly will affirm this. I have yet to have teenagers. I'm sure it is coming. (laughs) But what he is saying is I, I have bound myself by love. It's not on you. I love you because I said so. And my love is affirmed and confirmed, not by my ignorance, but because I know you and I love you. I know you and I love you. Think about the relationships that you're close to now. The people that tend to be the closest to you, like the really the closest to you, part of why they're so close is because they've walked with you long enough to see all your funkiness and they still answer your phone calls. They still invite you to Thanksgiving. It's too much amening going on right over here. Yay, Lord Arabasa. The scripture says in Hebrews, I'm sorry, not Hebrews, Romans. It reminds us of why Jesus is the better Hosea. As I reminded you, God is a covenant-keeping God. And he told Abraham, he made a promise with Abraham. And though the northern kingdom rebelled against God, the southern kingdom, God would bring about his covenant through the tribe of Judah. That through the tribe of Judah and through the line of David, 
his people would be restored, as was prophesied not only in Hosea, but in Isaiah and throughout the scripture. But he says specifically here, and this is what I want us to leave with. He says that for while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, I'm in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would maybe dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What is he saying? He's saying that I loved you, not because you had it together, but while you were a mess. And my love is not based on all that you're going to do or all that you're not going to do. Not only is it not based upon that, but I'm not going to leave you in a mess. See, he didn't just purchase. He didn't just call Hosea to purchase his wife. He said, I want you to free her, pay the purchase price, to redeem her and restore her. I want you to restore fellowship. I want you to bring her close. I want you to affirm her. I want you to speak blessing over her. God did not just send his word. He said, I will become, the word will become flesh in Jesus. And that I'm not just coming, that I would, my body would be broken and my blood would be spilt to fulfill the covenant and to pay the purchase price for your freedom. But I'm coming to rescue and restore you, to redeem you, to bring you close to myself. And it didn't just work for those who were unrighteous. For those that have been saved, he comes with great, with life and life evermore. See, many of us, it is our shame that keeps us from receiving the love of God at first. Before we knew Jesus, we tell ourselves, oh, surely, surely I've done too much. It's my shame that keeps me from him. And so, but then all of a sudden, he awakens our souls. We experience him. We receive his love. And then we get down the road and we realize, oh, no, I'm still a hot mess in some areas. But then rather than humble ourselves and repent and receive his forgiveness, it is not our shame but our pride that keeps us from coming back to him. What if people find out as though he didn't already know? And so I want to have the worship team come up right now. Because it's not enough to know. I want you, the reason we read these scriptures, the reason I proclaim this and I come with such passion is because I truly do want us to understand the love of God is not some flippant, weak sauce thing. The love of God is not some little middle school Valentine fling. Oh my gosh, she's so cute. 
Oh, my gosh, he said he loves me. No, no, no. It is tested. He loves you not because he has a bad memory. Sometimes we, we talk about the love of God, and the way we approach it is the same jacked-up way that we approach racial reconciliation. We talk about race, and we talk about ethnicity. It's like, I'm just colorblind. I don't even see color. I don't even see it. That's not reconciliation. God made color. If he wanted everything just to be blah, he would have just made us blah, but he didn't. Reconciliation, I see your differences. I celebrate you. I love you. In the same way, we can communicate a false image of the love of God that he loves you because he doesn't see any of your flaws. He doesn't know your scars. He doesn't know not just, not just what happened to you, but what you did. I know we all got different stories, but sometimes we can be so busy blaming everybody else that we forget we were not the son of God. We did not live the perfect life. We have been unfaithful. But yet, our covenant is not made true by our faithfulness, but by his because he is bound by his love. God wants... Not only are there some of you in here that you have never truly experienced this love of Jesus. That you hear about it and for so many years the enemy has played the real of things that have happened in your life that you would not want anybody in here to know about. There's things that only you and God know. And as far as you're concerned and have been concerned, you kind of just wanted to stay that way till you die. And you've convinced yourself that that's just your way of managing things because you don't believe you can be loved that people know. And you really don't know if he could love you. He wants you to know today, I love you. I love you. Not only does he love you, he doesn't just love you for what you could be. He loves you for what you are, for where you are. He loves you right where you are. A part of the story in Hosea 2, I'll read this and then I want to pray for some folks, but Hosea 2, 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, I will draw her. He's speaking to, his, to this personification of this adulterous people. I will bring her in the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. What's so powerful is that valley that he's referring to is also referred to as the valley of sorrows, of death, of mourning. He said, I'm going to come to the deepest place 
of darkness in your soul. And there is going to be an entrance to hope. I want to come to the point where you told yourself, I can never let anybody hear, and I don't even want to remember that that happened. I want to meet you there. And that's where we're going to start unpacking this hope and this redemption story. I mentioned in 2000, it was really when I began to hit, really where I hit rock bottom. I remember my own valley of anchor was actually Mass Ave. I had really been in a dark place. I'd lost my virginity. I'd done plenty of things close up to that before then, but I had really lost every sense of control and just felt like a dirty rag, just a worthless piece of garbage. Because I would run to performance to help me medicate my issues and my brokenness, I had heard about a production and they had lost somebody and they needed to fill in. So I said I would fill in and it was over at Theater on the Square. And the second night of rehearsal, everybody was going to go out and they were going to party. And we went and I remembered I was so broken, I really didn't care about anything. And there were two different girls that I made out with that night. And each time, it was almost like in the midst of it, I felt like garbage. It was like I couldn't even enjoy it. I was just, I was just wallowing in despair and brokenness. And I told myself when I left that party, I can never go back to that place. I actually left a jacket at the theater. I didn't tell the director I wasn't coming back. I didn't tell the cast I was coming back. I moved to Nashville about a month later. And so I was like, I'm never going to see those people again. And I, I just couldn't go to that place because it reminded me in that moment of how, what a hot mess I was, how much I had betrayed my parents' teaching, how I, I knew the love of God as a child. He told me he loved me time and time again, and my mom and dad affirmed it. And it was affirmed in all the services that I went to. And I was affirming other people in it in the concerts that I would sing at. And yet here I was, giving myself to other gods. I would move to Nashville, and it was there in the deepest place of my brokenness where God met me. He said, John, I did not bring you here to die. I love you, and I'm going to restore you. When I was walking on Mass Ave, I remember the lie of the enemy telling me, you won't get married because you can never be faithful. Don't even aspire to have children because they'll end up like you. And you're probably not going to live to see 30. And I remember those three lies would just run over and over and play in my head. On my 30th birthday, we came back to India. My wife had planned, unbeknownst to me, kind of a scavenger hunt throughout the city of Indianapolis. So we go to different places. We went over to East Washington where we lived for a little bit. We went over to 21st in Delaware. But she happened to know that I really, I like this new Cajun place called Yats. So for lunch, she took me to the Yats on Mass Ave. 
And while we were waiting for our food to come, I'm sitting at the table at the window, staring out at Mass Ave, and I began to think about a lot of that, that horrible conversation that the enemy was having with me and I was having myself. And before I could even get too far in that conversation, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, John, do you see where I brought you? You turned 30 today. Your beautiful, amazing wife is bringing this food over. And God is, and I've blessed you with children. I brought you to the place of your deepest, darkest pain. Because I wanted to remind you, I didn't just save you, I restore you. I know that there's people here this morning that you've given your life to Christ at one point or another. And you're here this morning and you just feel like a hot mess. You feel broken. The enemy has used you as a pincushion and has tried to drag your brokenness and your mistakes over you time and time again to keep you bound and chained. The Lord doesn't want you just to have been saved one time. He wants you to walk in the redemption and the restoration. Let's all stand together. Father, I thank you that you're here this morning. You are a rescuer. You are a redeemer. You are a lover. Lord, I'm asking that you would move this morning. If you're here this morning and you've heard this word and you say, I, I know that I have not been walking with the Lord. I, I know that I don't have a relationship with this Jesus and I have been broken wallowing in my brokenness, living in dysfunction, living not only abused but abusing others. I know that I, my goodness or my good works cannot get me where I need to go and I need this Jesus. If you're here and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, Jesus who was sent by the Father to live the life that we should have lived, the perfect life, he died the death that we should have died in our place because the wages of our sin is death. And then he rose three days later, conquering sin in the grave and proving that he was the Son of God. So that anyone who would repent and believe would receive eternal life and redemption through him. If you say, I want that, I want that love. I want that freedom. Just raise your hand where you are. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we lift up these people. Lord, we thank you that your word says you give grace to the humble. And Lord, I'm asking that right now, that you would meet them. Lord, first of all, I don't even have to ask you. Lord, I thank you that you're meeting them right where they are. Lord, I thank you that you've paid the purchase price of your blood so that they can walk in freedom, in life. With every high, just go ahead and bow your head and 
close your eyes. I just really quickly, those of you who say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to surrender my life wholly to him. I want to turn from my way and give my life to him. Raise your hand one more time. One more time. Raise your hand. I want our leaders, if you're a leader, go ahead and gaze right over. And we're not going to, I'm not going to lead you to a quick prayer right now. I want you to connect with somebody afterwards. We want to help you walk this thing out. You can go ahead and put your hand down. Now, if you are here and you say, I've given my life, I've surrendered my life to the Lord. And I have walked in hidden sin and shame. I have convinced myself that I have to just take this thing and carry this thing. That God, I know he loves me, but I don't know if he really likes me. I don't know if he wants to be with me. You've convinced yourself that he is looking at you with condemnation and weighing his, waving his pointy finger with his angry eyes. The Lord wants you to know that he loves you and not only, and he loves you not because you've always been good, but he loves you because he's good. And he wants you to walk in freedom and restoration this morning. However, you must humble yourself and repent. If that's you, I just want to ask you, just lift your hands right now. Both hands. There's not one, in, one of us in here who at some point in the rest of our lives will not have both hands and feet raised. Lord, I'm asking you right now, Lord, that you would forgive us of the sin of pride. Lord, I'm asking you right now that you would forgive us of the sin of pride. Lord, that you would help us, that you would give us the grace to humble ourselves, Lord. That you would give us the grace and the courage and the boldness, God, to confess our sin one to another, Lord. Not just to get it off our chest. Lord, not just to to vomit. Lord, not just to show our scars, but to receive your mercy. To receive your love. Lord, I pray against the spirit of condemnation and shame right now. Lord, that is stalked that is followed, that is haunted. Lord, I pray that your love right now, Lord, I'm asking that you would break the back of sin and condemnation. That your love would invade, Lord God. That your love would invade. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget... You can find us online at cityoflights.church and connect with us on Facebook, 